Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we're going to tell a story, a story about video games, industry, and two platform holders that are taking significantly different approaches, not just to the way they operate their platforms, but also the way they decided to expand their portfolio, focusing this week on Sony, who, if you checked out our most recent video in virtual legality, has been on what some have framed as a bit of an acquisition spree, what we think will probably wind up being three companies, but is at least two as of today, but which properly can't be put into the same level of acquisitions as its most major competitor in the hardware sales department, and that's Microsoft. So let's talk about what was announced today. On your screen right now is the website homepage for a company called Nixies, or Nix's. I don't really know exactly how they pronounce them, and probably you haven't heard of them. Now, you might have, because Nix's has been making some fairly prominent games in the video game industry, but not making them themselves. Most specifically, they've been helping Crystal Dynamics and Square Enix port games over from the console ecosystem over to the PC one. If you go and you look, you will see a number of projects from them that relate to that porting process. Today, Sony announced, welcome to the family, Jim Baker style, and said, just like they said about Housemark earlier this week, that they are adding Nixes to the Sony PlayStation family formally. They are buying the company. And for what purpose? Well, let's take a look at their press release. Sony Interactive Entertainment announced today that SIE had completed the acquisition of Nix's software BV, an industry-leading Dutch studio with more than 20 years of experience in game development and optimization. Based in Utrecht, Netherlands, effective immediately, Nixes will join PlayStation Studios' Technology, Creative, and Services Group to provide high-quality in-house technical and development capabilities for PlayStation Studios. Now, as we just said, you go and you look at their list of items that they've worked on. They don't make their own stuff. Uh, and we're going to look at their Wikipedia entry, which is actually on German Wikipedia and translated from German, to see a few quotes from their founder that suggest that that's really what they were always aimed at being. You also see, unlike the big, long British GQ interview that we saw with respect to Housemark and the issuance of Returnal and all those kinds of things, that this company is instead joining their technology, creative, and services group, their back office support for all the studios in general to provide that technology. And one would presume to help ease the Sony pressure to move games over to PC now that they've seen some success there with things like Horizon and Days Gone. Or as Herman Holst, head of PlayStation Studios, puts it even more succinctly in the quote he puts in this press conference release, I highly respect Nix's and am excited for this very experienced team to become part of the world-class development community at SIE. They have a passion for improving games and for delivering the best possible experience for gamers. Nix's will be a strong asset for everyone across PlayStation Studios, helping our teams focus on their most important goal, which is to create unique PlayStation content at the best possible quality. Nixus is viewed by Herman Holst and PlayStation and Sony as a technical support company that will aid the other companies that are making the games themselves in producing the highest quality content because they won't have to worry about technical issue X or Y, or perhaps, as many have suspected, porting their games that they are making over to the PC environment. 
We can't wait to get to work and are so excited to bring our technical and development expertise to an IP powerhouse like PlayStation Studios, said Jurgen Katzman, founder and senior director of development Nixus. We're looking forward to working with some of the most talented teams in the industry to deliver the highest quality gameplay experiences for PlayStation fans. And as I mentioned, they've almost always been working on ports. And you can see in their Wikipedia page that those have almost all been with respect to Crystal Dynamics and or Square Enix after their purchase of the company. So if anybody lost in this transition, it's probably Square Enix and Crystal Dynamics who have been using their services almost exclusively for two decades now. You see Legacy of Kane, Legacy of Kane. Soul Reaver 2, Blood Omen 2, Defiance, Tomb Raider, Tomb Raider, Tomb Raider, Kanan Lynch, Lara Croft and the Guardian of Light, Deus Ex, Hitman, Tomb Raider, Thief, Tomb Raider, Deus Ex, Tomb Raider. So they have been very closely tied with Square Enix and Square Enix maybe should have bought them if they were trying to block something like this from happening. But what's important as a part of the story is seeing what the difference in philosophy is. As I mentioned, we just saw Sony buy up Housemark, which I think a lot of people didn't even realize Sony didn't own. This was a topic of conversation before Returnal had come out and I was making appearances on podcasts where some folks thought that Housemark was a first party studio of Sony's. And of course, since they just announced that they were purchased this week, they were not. But one could be forgiven for that because Housemark really only ever made things for Sony and Sony had been funding development of the games they made. But what's important about the Housemark acquisition along with the Nix's acquisition is how Sony emphasizes it. In the, one of the very first answers that Herman Holst gives to British GQ when he's answering questions about the Housemark acquisition, he describes how they helped him work on Killzone says that they were actually super useful. It was easy for me to pick up the phone last year when I've not been in the role for long. I think it was back in 2006 that Alari with his core team at Housemark came down to Amsterdam when I was struggling to get Killzone Liberation for PSP out the door. What stood out then was how technically capable the core team was at Housemark. And you've been able to witness that in all of the titles that they've been making pretty much for every single PlayStation platform since. The emphasis in both of these transactions is technical prowess. Nix's doesn't make its own stuff. It ports things to PC and it also ports things to Xbox. You heard it here first, folks. God of War, Spider-Man coming out on Xbox. No, please don't tweet that out. Don't share that. Don't take clips of that part. We're joking here in virtual legality. PlayStation did not buy them to move things over to the Xbox any more than Microsoft planned to move things over when they bought Bethesda, even though I think it wouldn't be the worst idea in the world. You see the description here in that same Wikipedia entry that the this company, Nix, has actually started uh, as a one-man company in Katzman's attic. He received orders from Crystal Dynamics to make things uh, like Legacy of Kane Soul Reaver. That relationship obviously blossomed with Crystal Dynamics and then Square Enix. And you see here, according to Katzman in an interview in 2011, the company does not aim to develop in-house as Katzman has no passion for game design and sees his focus on technical service. Doesn't look at designing the actual game, the platform that you interact with, as much as helping the back end and helping get these things functioning properly on the platforms that they're going to be on. So this is essentially adding technical support for Sony's entire global brand of studios. And one would be surprised if Housemark, while still saying all the right things and getting all the right information in the British GQ article as well as the blog post, and will undoubtedly make big games for Sony in the future, 
isn't also used in a similar capacity where they save folks like Herman Holst who can't get Killzone Liberation for PSP out the door. When you put all these studios together, whether you're Activision, Electronic Arts, Sony, or Microsoft, you do hopefully gain certain synergies, certain abilities for somebody that's having a problem with some technical question or other type of question, being able to call one of the other companies and other studios that's owned by the parent company and say, hey, I need some help with this. And over the course of this week, you've seen Sony focus like a laser beam on what I would argue is improving the quality of the games that they put out. This is even further cemented with the accidental but probable leaked announcement that Sony is also adding Bluepoint to their family. We can't take it as sacrosanct right now because this was accidentally put up there, but you see the same kind of delivery that we saw with the Nix's transaction that we saw with the Housemark transaction, and Bluepoint makes a ton of sense. But Bluepoint is not necessarily the same as Nix's as a porting company, but they are a remaster or remake company. They have worked on Shadow of the Colossus. They have worked on Demon Souls and done other things of that ilk. They are, again, technical wizards like the other folks that we have seen Sony acquire this week. So this triumvirate of studios, I look at and say, Sony understands that its business model is the opposite of Game Pass in some important respect. Where you've got Xbox buying up Bethesda, potentially buying up even more and more studios to get quantity in what they hope to be the Netflix of video games, you have Sony instead saying, we're going to continue to sell $70 video games, if not more expensive, and we're going to continue to sell them on the premise that this is the elite kind of offering. This is the stuff that the equivalent of foodies in the world of gaming will go to get, and Game Pass is the old country buffet where you just want to get games shoved into your mouth. Now that, I know people are going to come into the comments and say, Bethesda doesn't just do that, and Bethesda doesn't just do that, but certainly Bethesda can make big stuff, Bethesda can make small stuff, not everything in ZeniMax Studios is something that is necessarily going to put out supremely high quality games of the level where we're talking about them for game of the year, and yet still a good acquisition that makes sense for Xbox's philosophy in spending $7.5 billion to populate their game service and continuing revenue project. Sony, on the other hand, has said pretty flatly they don't want to go into that business. Now, they'll probably be forced into it in some respect, but they want to sell you a game in Ratchet & Clank for $70. And if we've got back office technical support to help make that happen more often and at a higher quality, Sony thinks that it can sell you that premium product and have a successful business model when Xbox is moving towards this get this one thing and we'll have recurring revenue for our entire lives and you will play what we put onto it. I have no problem with Bethesda. I think they make good games. I think a lot of the studios in Bethesda make good games. I think Arcane is criminally underrated and was selling much less than they should have for the games that they put out there. But there is no question that when we talk about technical prowess, that just buying entire publishers and buying companies like Double Fine or In Exile at, have had historical problems with fidelity and having their games run smoothly that we're talking about different philosophies and importantly, philosophies that make sense for both sides. So yeah, I named my video quality over quantity because, hey, I've been YouTubing for a while now. I, I know what's more likely to get clicks than not, but I truly believe that that is the distinction 
in philosophy here. Microsoft wants to put out the highest quality products they can within that philosophy. And Sony looks at limiting the population of games that they're actually making because they aren't selling this buffet and getting technical companies that can help facilitate that across their entire Worldwide Studios brand. Which now leads into the second portion of this video, which is that Sony is still archaic in important respects. I just saw a blog post as I was putting together the research for this video in which Ghost of Tsushima is getting what they are calling a director's cut. And in this director's cut, they're getting a new island, what amounts to expansion content to play new things. They're getting lip sync with the Japanese video. They're getting 4K. They're getting haptic feedback on their controller. They're getting generalized upgrades that we have seen now in the PlayStation 4 to PlayStation 5 transition. And just to be clear, I'm going to buy this. I thought Ghost of Tsushima was the best game of 2020. If you haven't seen this list before, you can check out the entire discussion about my 2020 list with my brother Tom uh, in a video on this channel, and you can analyze it as you will. But Ghost of Tsushima was my favorite game of last year. I'm going to get an expansion. I'm going to get an upgrade. And yet, I can't help but feel taken advantage of with the way that Sony has positioned their sales offering for Ghost of Tsushima and the price gates that are related there too. In order to understand that a little bit more, we need to take a look at my number two game from 2020, Final Fantasy VII Remake, who, if you haven't been following it, just put out its PlayStation 4 to PlayStation 5 upgrade two weeks ago. And they call it, as Square Enix likes to do, a random name, Final Fantasy VII Remake Intergrade. And I think it's Side Mission Yuffie or something like that, Intermission with Mission Capitalized. God love them. Square Enix names their things really, really weirdly. But if you go and you scroll down and try to figure out exactly how you're going to buy this thing, you scroll and you scroll and you scroll and you see in this Newsweek article, if you purchase Final Fantasy VII Remake on the PlayStation 4, you will qualify for the free PS5 update. If you've never owned it, you can buy this new version, which they call Intergrade, at the full price of $70. So if you have the PlayStation 4 version, you're going to get Final Fantasy VII Remake and it's volumetric lighting, and it's 60 frames per second, and all the PlayStation 5 bells and whistles on it for free. And if you've never owned it, it'll cost you $70. And if you want to get the expansion that they put into Integrade, it'll cost you $20. Now, even I, looking at $20, and I hope that's pretty good, and as you might have heard from me on Virtual Legality, I think the Yuffie DLC here is basically one of the best pieces of video game content I have played this last year. And also that the upgrades to the baseline game are nothing to sneeze at at all. You see here the Washington Post Final Fantasy VII Remake Integrade sets a new standard for console generation updates. And indeed it does. It's an absolutely fantastic upgrade that was given for free as upgrades have tended towards here in the PlayStation 4 to PlayStation 5 or Xbox One to Xbox Series X generational transition. And yet Ghost of Tsushima one of their most popular games. Sony knows what they can try to leverage out of people, but let's walk through exactly what they try to do. Again, focusing on quality over quantity, but also focusing on taking every single dollar that they can from you in something as simple as a generational transition. So if you already own Ghost of Tsushima on PlayStation 4, you bought it $60 day and date, you were excited about it, you put it as number one on your 2020 game of the year list, whatever it might be you can pre-order an upgrade to Director's Cut on PlayStation 4 for $20. Now, note what that is. That's you getting the expansion. That's you getting the island because you're not getting the PlayStation 5 upgrades. This is just you buying the island expansion for $20 all on the PlayStation 4. 
And that upgrade will become available starting on August 20th. Now, starting on August 20th, if you bought the Director's Cut PlayStation 4, you can upgrade it to the Director's Cut PlayStation 5 at any time for $10. Now, that's the most baseline upgrade path. So you upgrade on the PlayStation 4 first, then you upgrade that whole unit to the PlayStation 5. That costs you $10. Compare it to Final Fantasy VII Remake, and you'll see that the difference there is $10 to free. That's not necessarily the end of the world. Might even be bigger and better than the Final Fantasy VII uh, Remake upgrade. Now, I don't necessarily think that actually charging for this generational shift makes a lot of sense, especially when you're Sony and you're apparently doing it randomly. You think about things like The Last of Us Part II, they put up a free upgrade. You think a day's gone, they put up a free upgrade. That's tended to be what they are doing. And here they're directly charging $10 for that upgrade. More unfortunately is the notion that, okay, I have the PlayStation 4 copy of Ghosts of Tsushima. I would just like to get the upgrade. I don't need the new Icky Island $20 expansion. I don't know whether I will like it. I'll wait on reviews, but I do want that PlayStation 5 upgrade because I would love some 60 frames per second 4K. I'd love some haptic feedback, stuff that's pretty normal in the upgrade pathway and that Square Enix and Final Fantasy VII Remake, one of the best games of last year, offered for free. You'll note there isn't a bullet point for that. I can't do that on the Sony or the PlayStation So what do I have to do? Well, I find myself in this third bullet point. I can upgrade directly from original Ghost of Tsushima PlayStation 4, what you would have bought last year, to Director's Cut on PlayStation 5 for $30. $30, not an insubstantial amount of money. And what you see here is a pay gate, a tying of two products, right? It's self-evident what the cost of an upgrade from PlayStation 4 to PlayStation 5 is to Sony in their experience, in their opinion, and that's $10. But I have no ability to just buy an upgrade from the original PlayStation 4 to the PlayStation 5 for that $10. Instead, I have to buy the expansion. If I want my game to use the PlayStation 5 bells and whistles to get that upgrade, Sony says, we don't care if you're not interested in Icky Island. You have to purchase it. And that goes in either direction that you look at this. You're buying Icky Island up here for $20 in order to get the $10 upgrade path, a total of $30, or you can just go straight there for that $30. Either way, you're getting a significantly lower value proposition than what Square Enix and Final Fantasy VII Remake offers. And I'm using that as an example because it came out in the last couple of weeks, but most upgrade paths are free, potentially with an expansion. You just saw a game like Greedfall, which was one of my top games of 2019, have a generational upgrade that was offered for free. And with that free upgrade, they also sold, I think, an $8 or $9 expansion. And Greedfall isn't anywhere near the level of Final Fantasy VII Remake and Ghost of Tsushima, but it's a good game. And you see that free pathway because they're increasing frame rate and changing a few graphical issues. And maybe it'll be worth it for $10 on the Ghost of Tsushima side. Maybe it won't. The point is you won't be able to just spend $10 if you want that PlayStation 5 version. They're holding that upgrade hostage with the purchase of the expansion pass. And we saw Sony do this before, right? We saw Sony do this before with respect to Marvel's Spider-Man remastered project. If you don't know, they released a PlayStation 5 version of their 2018 classic game now, Spider-Man, which is absolutely fantastic, but they refused to sell it openly. Instead, if you wanted to buy Spider-Man Remastered, you could only get it as a purchase within a special deluxe edition of their Spider-Man Miles Morales product 
or for a $20 upgrade when you already owned a standard Miles Morales. So you had to get Miles Morales in order to have this product available to you at all. They're tying disparate but related things together. If you go back to this pricing here, you could kind of frame it the other way and say Ghost of Tsushima PlayStation 5 edition is being held hostage for the icky game for $30. Now that's better than the Miles Morales pricing, uh, which was significantly more, but it's still a tying of two things that you may or may not want together in a market where Microsoft is busy saying, oh no, you'll get the X version and the S version for free whenever it's available through smart delivery. And where even other third-party companies and Sony itself are putting out PlayStation 5 upgrades to games without a lot of ceremony or concern. Now you might look at this and say, hey, it's gonna be a bigger deal on PlayStation 5. And I could say, maybe it will be. And so we could talk about that $10, but I'm never gonna be in favor of this tie bar here to a different product that I may or may not want. If you wanna kind of think about this in another way, because hey, Rick, you love Ghost of Tsushima. Imagine a bad actor. Maybe it's not Sony. Maybe Sony's the best company on earth. I don't know. But imagine a bad actor that says, we're gonna upgrade this for PlayStation 5 and we're gonna say it's coming with a $20 expansion. That $20 expansion is a half hour long and it's really terrible. You cannot get the upgrade that is otherwise great for the game that you love without buying this thing that turns out to be terrible. Now, I have no reason to believe that that will happen. I already said at the top of this video, I would be buying this because I think it'll be great, but I would like the option not to. And I really do think the difference in philosophy that you're seeing in terms of things like acquisitions and in terms of fighting what amounts to a company in Microsoft that has decided to empty the piggy bank to compete in the gaming industry using money from all this other stuff that apparently they sell, you know, like server space. I think they sell something to companies of some kind. Apparently they're worth $2 trillion that Sony can't get involved in what they call an arms race, which was a discussion that you might've seen on social media and IGN and other places based around the Housemark interview. They can't get involved in just a willy-nilly spending spree against Microsoft because if they did, they will lose. But in so doing, in kind of taking it down to, we're going to be the premium, whatever you think of as a really, really premium automobile version of video games, and we're gonna let Xbox sell Camrys out into the world, that means that Sony feels that they're gonna have to do more and more things like this, that this is a premium experience. This is the luxury yacht of video games. And so we feel entitled to do this kind of thing because we're separating the market pretty specifically. And while I think Sony has a good plan in terms of making premium quality games, even at a $70 price point, I look at things like this and that rubs me the wrong way, which isn't a great idea because otherwise I love the output that Sony has. So it's a very interesting scenario that we're in in video gaming. If you've got your own thoughts on this, let me know what you think. Is Sony pursuing a quality over quantity philosophy? Is Microsoft pursuing the opposite? What do we think about Microsoft's quality output and what focus it'll have on that, especially given the companies that we know that they've already purchased? And how do you feel about Sony and Ghost of Tsushima and Spider-Man tie bars and what they've been doing in the first year of PlayStation 5 release with some of these economic decisions that if you're anything like me, rub me just a little bit the wrong way. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you love talking about the business and law of video games, pop culture, and otherwise, please consider supporting the channel. We've got a Patreon, Streamlabs, shirts to buy, or just subscribing and telling your friends that we're having these conversations almost every day, at least every other day. And I'd love to hear your comments and contributions as well. 
If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.